a listener production. Every powerful speech that you can remember from history has caused a change of some description in the minds or the hearts of the people that listen to it. And the most impactful speeches continue to have an impact years and years, decades, centuries after they're delivered. So the person that's delivering the speech needs to find a way to communicate that is them. You know, it's a reflection of their character. I'm Margie Hartley, executive coach to senior leaders around the globe, and this is Fast Track. Some of the greatest moments in history are no accident. When a leader speaks and connects to an audience, it's no fluke. And behind the great words we remember, there's a carefully thought out speech, written to drive change, create connection or inspire. Powerful speeches change minds, communities and the world. And they also teach us valuable lessons in the art of persuasion and creating positive change. Speech writing and presentation is a common minefield in leadership. Using the right words to adequately and powerfully sum up an issue, coupled with the delivery of the speech, is often a difficult, if not dreaded, part of leadership. But the importance of a strong, engaging speech is clear. Giving employees direction, guidance and inspiration is undoubtedly key to a motivated, inspired and driven team. So I'm thrilled to welcome today communication specialist Monica Lunen to dig a little deeper. Monica is the founder of Mojo Logic, a consultancy that specialises in developing the skills of communication, influence and leadership. She's also the author of a new book, What She Said, The Art of Inspiring Action Through Speech. It explores 40 inspiring speeches from women throughout history including Queen Elizabeth I, Greta Thunberg, Julia Gillard and Michelle Obama, delving into how and why they are so impactful in creating positive change and how we can apply these lessons to the workplace. So let's dig into the art form of speech writing, how it's done, why it's so important and whether it can make or break a career. Monica, a huge welcome to Fast Track. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Marky. It's so good to see you. And I'm fascinated by this book and this topic. Why did you write it? Well, you know, somebody sent me some advice once. It's the kind of thing you'd maybe put on a coffee mug. Write the book that only you can write. Um, I'm not exactly sure I've done that, but there's a million books. Well, maybe not a million, thousands of books out there on public speaking, as I'm sure you know. But for me, what was missing was a book that really focused on the words of women. So if you were to pull down any book of famous speeches throughout history, you would find them 90% plus populated in speeches by men. And I love all of those speeches, you know, Martin Luther King and JFK and Churchill. But I felt as though there are powerful, memorable, impactful speeches out there that were delivered by women. And there wasn't a book to celebrate those and analyze what it was that those women did to use their voice to change history or their little corner of the world. But you're so right. They're so hard to find or research or Google. I know I've tried to do it too. And one of my bugbears is, and I know why, but 
the Stoics are all men and I yeah. love listening to the Stoics and hearing <laughs> yes. about them, but there's no, there's no alternate voice. And so in your book, you explore some of these masterful speeches. You know, you talk about even Queen Elizabeth I, who's had very long reign, yeah. right, whether you're a monarchist or not. Greta Thunberg, young and, you know, inspiring. Julia Gillard. And you look at not only what was said in these speeches, but also how and why the speech worked. Can you tell me a bit about how powerful, successful speeches actually work and how they're effective? Sure. So you mentioned the Stoics. Well, I'm a huge fan of Aristotle and, you know, he he really started the study of public speaking, if you like, with the art of rhetoric. And he identifies three core components of what makes a persuasive speech. And I think there is true now as they were 2,000 plus years ago. Um, and then he adds a third, which is, is often forgotten, I think, in the study of public speaking. So the first is ethos. We have to trust the speaker. And this is partly the words that are the content of the speech, but it's also how it's delivered. Do we believe that you're the right person to deliver this particular message on this day? Aristotle also mentions logos. So that's more than, than logic and things making sense, although that's part of it. It's also structure. It's having the right use of evidence to support the core proposition of the speech. And then there's pathos, which I think lately, with the rise of people in leadership and in communication in general, coming to terms with the fact that empathy matters, that we need to feel something in order to be persuaded. It was like 20 years ago, somehow, pathos was stripped from business communications. Uh, and academic communication, too, I'd put that in the same bucket. Like, take out any use or reference to emotion. And then, unfortunately, you rip out all the life and the soul from a speech. Mm. So pathos is that third element. You need to get people to feel something. So what Aristotle would have said, and what I also believe, is that if you have all three, you really do have the ingredients or the makings of a great piece of oratory. And that great piece of oratory needs to be delivered by the right person. That can change people's minds. And if you can change somebody's mind, you can change history. Now, that third element that Aristotle referred to that I think is skipped over often is called kairos, and that's the sense of timing. So what's the context within which a particular speech is delivered? And that has such an impact on how it's received and then what happens in the aftermath. So Julia Gillard's misogyny speech, which a lot of people, especially around International Women's Day, were talking about, and still you can find quotes of that speech on tea towels. I saw something on Instagram recently with, I think, some running shoes that said, <laughs> I will not be lectured to. So, you know, the context within which she delivered that speech is really important in understanding its impact. You know, so what happened before she delivered that speech? What was happening in Parliament? You know, she was staring down... Tony Abbott when she landed each one of those barbs, each one of those sentences. So that matters too. So in this book, I've analyzed the context for each of the 40 speeches that I've selected. So it's not just, it's not an anthology. It's not just the words. It's who was the woman that was speaking? What was going on in the world, in the room within which she delivered her message? And from that, we can understand a little bit more about what makes it so impactful. Mm. And just thinking about Julia Gillard's speech, is, is it true that it was off the cuff? Yes, apparently so. I find that incredibly difficult to believe, but I've had lots of people assure me that that was the case. But, you know, if you recall the way that she used to speak, 
there was a slow pace and a moderated tone to the way that she communicated. It always sounded measured. Even when you knew she was speaking off the cuff because she was answering questions, Mm. it sounded, didn't it sound like quite rehearsed? Yes. But then when she delivered the misogyny speech, it was still all of those things that were endemic to her style, but she just amped it up. You know, she spoke a little bit more quickly, with certainly with more force, more energy, more emotion, without it being emotional. Mm. And that made it punchy, and it made it memorable. Wow. So these ideas, I love the way you brought it back to Aristotle. I'm fascinated by this, things I didn't know, and I work in the field. So this <laughs> is really, really interesting. So you said what makes a great speech is to pull those things together. Is that right? Yeah, I think so, yes. I, th- I think that still stands If I think about the really great ones, they have all three. Yeah. Okay. So the process of speech writing, what's the golden ticket or the rules? Yeah, I wish there was was one (laughs) silver bullet, dare I use another metaphor. But, you know, I think to create a speech that is going to change people's minds, that's going to be persuasive, it really serves the speech maker or the speech writer, if you have the luxury of working with a professional speech writer, to stand back a little bit from the problem. So often people just jump in, right? And the the worst possible thing you can do is open PowerPoint as your first step in trying to create a, a meaningful and memorable presentation. So just don't do that. Step back and think, okay, what is it that I want to say? What's the difference that I want to make? What works for me is landing on that myopic purpose first. I want to shift people from A to B. What's the change? What's the delta? And then once I have that in my mind, I think about the who. So who am I, the speaker? Who is the person that's going to be delivering the speech? What's their relationship with the audience? Where's the audience at? You know, how do you read the room before you're in the room? Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can work out all of the ingredients to put together that make up a speech that shift them. So every speech in this book, every powerful speech that you can remember from history has caused a change of some description in the minds or the hearts of the people that listen to it. And the most impactful speeches continue to have an impact years and years, decades, centuries after they're delivered. Mm, That's really interesting. So Queen Elizabeth I, what did she say that's been impactful? So Queen Elizabeth I delivered the Tilbury speech. So that's um, several hundred years ago now. So as the troops were about to embark on their battle against the Spanish Armada, they were assembled. You know, students of of history, in particular military history, would know a lot more about it than I do. But the connection we can draw to what's going on today is, well, how do you motivate a group of people that simply don't want to do what you're asking them to do? Either it's inconvenient, which is probably more the point in today's context, but in their world, it was life-threatening. So they knew that they were unlikely to come back. So how does a leader motivate a group of people to do something, to follow her up the hill, as it were? And the way that she did that was she put her whole self on the line. And she said famously, I am but a woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king. And she implied to the troops that were listening to her, not just that this was a worthwhile cause, that they should stand up and defend their country, but that she was with them in heart and in spirit and fully committed. And I think you need that element of persuasion if you're going to get people to take that kind of a risk and Mm. believe that what they're doing matters. Mm, I'm inspired just listening to you. (laughs) I'm going to ask a 
a basic question, um, the how we deliver the presentation. You mentioned that earlier, but I'd like to delve into it a little bit deeper. This sense of lucky timing or are we on the hill? Are we on the pulpit? Can we give this, you know, in a rally? What what does it look like and how do we deliver it? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great question. And, And again, it varies depending on on the who. So the, the okay. person that's delivering the speech needs to find a way to communicate that is them. You know, it's a reflection of their character. Because if we don't have your character reflected from the pulpit or from the podium, then, you know, audiences don't like things not to represent what we expect. So if we know Margie to be a particular person, she stands up and delivers a speech, we're expecting her to be slightly different than how you are right now as we're sitting down one-to-one having a conversation, how you are at a dinner party. Yeah, we're going to have a different version of you, but it still has to be you. So we need to feel coherence between the speaker and what we already know of them. That's why it's so tricky for politicians that work with speechwriters and that are heavily coached. I'm sure you can tell. I can certainly tell when the coach gets in the way of a politician or a leader delivering a communication in a way that feels natural, that lets us see into them. Well, to be frank, we're talking about Julia Gillard and I felt that even before that speech that there were times when she had been overly coached in her Agreed. communication. Would you yeah. Would you agree with that? I mean, we don't know. We're Agreed. just guessing. Yes. But um, that's how it appeared. So yes. when she did her misogyny speech, it was like, that's you. That's you rolling it out. Yeah, I wish we had more of it. Yeah. And my criticism, I mean, everyone had criticisms of Julia Gillard's speaking style back when she was Prime Minister and before. And you're right, She it felt a little bit wooden. Mm. Except for on that day when it, it felt anything but wooden. Mm. But the thing about her always was she never put a foot wrong. Like never, even under pressure in question time, she was on her game. And that's difficult to do, with the bar- especially with the treatment she received from the media. So, you, you know, I have huge amount of respect for her ability to, to carry her message through and, and to be so resilient. But if we come back to, you know, the how or what's sometimes called the theater of presenting. There's lots of things you can learn, and absolutely people should avail themselves of that training or, you know, go and research what to do with your hands. Just don't put them in your pockets for a start. How to project your voice, how to move with intent, how to modulate your voice, all of those things, the technique, if you like, of public speaking will absolutely help you, help anybody deliver a better speech, a better presentation. But none of that matters if we feel as though we can't trust what you're saying. So the first thing is just embody your speech. Make sure that every word that you're speaking is you and that you believe it. Because if you don't believe it, nobody else, certainly nobody else is going to believe it. And then the theater of presenting can be added so that your message is amplified. Mm. Uh, so many people we see that have really important messages, have a lot to say, I want to hear them. They do themselves a disservice by not, first of all, a lot of people are just terrified of public speaking. So they they just don't take the opportunities. Maya Angelou is one of the speeches. Mm. And my favorite lesson from that actually has nothing to do with what she did or said. It's just that she said yes. So years ago when she was asked by Oprah Winfrey, because they were great friends, as you probably know, um, tell me the story of how this came about. She did the, she delivered on the Pulse of Morning, which is a poem at Bill Clinton's inauguration. 
And um, what she said when she was asked about it was, you know, Bill Clinton, president-elect, rang her and said, would you do this? And she said, the first thing is, yes, just yes. So I have no idea what I'm going to say. I have no idea that I have a right to deliver <laughs> a poem to the nation, the world, on this auspicious event. But before I even worry about any of that, the answer is yes. So for me, that's just such a, a memorable and magical moment for anybody when it comes to public speaking, but for women in particular. And it's a powerful indication of intent at a deep level that's going to take you through with belief in your delivery. Yeah, exactly. And then we, you know, other people will see that and feel it. Mm, that's amazing. Monica, I'm curious a little bit about the empathy and how we follow people with empathy. And we're in the middle of a an election campaign at the moment. I'm curious, how does empathy show up? It's really interesting, given the, you know, that we are right on the the cusp of a national election. And we know that Scott Morrison has been plagued by um, questions of trust. For him, it's trust, not in terms of credibility, which I think is more the question for Anthony Albanese. But for Scott Morrison, it's a question of trust linked to integrity. So when we listen to a candidate or a politician or a leader of any kind speak, we want to feel, if we're going to follow them, we need to feel that they are of good character. And that one of the ways you signal good character is through integrity. And so we want an alignment. When you say the words that are supposed to evoke an emotional or empathetic response, we need to see alignment between those words and your actions. We need to see alignment between those words and your facial expressions. So it could be that the habit that Scott Morrison has of a little sort of sideways mouth movement that looks like a smirk is just an you know unconscious behavior. That could be, doesn't matter. It creates the impression that he doesn't believe what he's saying. And that then calls into question his empathy and his trust. empathy and uh, integrity. That yeah. is that makes so much sense. Thank you. One thing that really makes me very curious is this whole concept of storytelling. Now, the entire corporate universe has been told that they need a good story. I've seen some terrible things happen where I've had eight leaders I've been emceeing and eight leaders have stood up over the course of a day and everyone had a different story and metaphor, whether it was rowing, sailing, skiing or something else. And the audience were completely confused about what they were meant to be following. What's the right amount of storytelling, not overdoing it or underdoing it? Have you got a view on that? I do. And my view is um, probably shaped a little bit by the same experiences you have had. Storytelling in our industry over the last decade, maybe, sort of became the new black. Like everything has to be a story, and that's just not true. So stories are really important because it's connected to the way human beings have always communicated with each other. We're hardwired to listen to a story, to appreciate it, to want to know the ending, if you like. But that doesn't mean that everything is a story. So if you step back from what it is you're trying to achieve in a particular presentation, and then think, how am I best equipped or how should I populate my speech in order to achieve that outcome? So if you're asked by a board of directors to provide some insights on, you know, last quarter's earnings, the last thing you should do is tell a story. I 
think. I can't imagine how that would be impactful. I think that could be quite frustrating for the audience that you're speaking to. So stories do make a difference. I think the test, the first question should be, is the fact that this is a personal story, because you're you're talking about a lot of autobiographical stories, right, which are more powerful than biographical stories, but only if they suit the purpose and the audience of what you're trying to achieve. So before you go and share something about yourself, ask yourself, is this important? Is this just some sort of ego-centered desire to tell my story? Because that's not relevant to the other people. So get out of your own head, first of all. Put yourself in the shoes of the audience. Is this something they need or want to hear? Will it make a difference? And I really like the word relevant. Is it relevant to what I'm trying to say, the purpose of what I'm trying to say, and to the audience at hand? Yeah, yeah. And um, there is a one of the 10 chapters in this book is about harnessing the power of stories. And for me, the most impactful story was one delivered by Eva Kaur, who was a Holocaust survivor. She passed away a few years ago. So she was a twin and um, was taken to Auschwitz. And her and her twin sister were experimented on, and she suffered horrific abuses. Her story is her message. You can't deliver the message that she wants to deliver, which is basically, we can never forget what happened in the Holocaust without telling a personal story. It's a story only she can tell. So we can share it. I've just told you a precy of what happened to her, but there's nothing like the personal story to change people's minds. And it's her story to tell. And it's her story to tell. Yeah, I really love that. There are 10 chapters or themes in the book And each of the 40 speeches is set up the same way. So you briefly mentioned that before. Help me understand exactly how you've presented them. Yeah, sure. So the 10 themes emerged as I was conducting my research, right? Pulling out um, examples, watching video clips, reading speeches, uh, just researching all the speeches that might form the content for this book. And they started to sort of drop themselves into categories, you know. And so I came up with these 10 themes So, you know, one of them, for example, is how to use humor in persuasion. Uh, Another is how to change people's minds. Uh, Another is a theme of inclusion. So how to deliver a message of inclusion where we have Jacinda Ardern, for example, in that chapter. Or how to deliver guidance, advice, and wisdom. So each of these 10 themes has different requirements of persuasion. So although the same person might deliver a speech that let's say you go back to your alma mater, your university, to deliver a commencement address. That's a speech in which you are delivering guidance, advice, and wisdom. You might deliver the same topic, but it would be a very different speech if you are addressing a different audience and you are trying to um, change people's minds on a particular subject. So the context first comes in in those 10 different themes. Then each each of the 10 chapters has four speeches or four women featured in it. For each of those speeches, there's a little short precy of biographical information. So who was the woman? When was she alive? What was her role in the world? What's the title of the speech that I've selected? And where and when was it delivered? To what size audience? And then there's sort of a page and a half, a couple hundred words, I guess, um, that provides us with that context. So what was happening when Marie Curie um, went to Stockholm to accept her second Nobel Prize 
And what was the context within which she delivered that speech? I don't know why that one just came to mind for me, probably because that was her second Nobel Prize. She didn't attend the ceremony when she received the first one. Her husband went. They were dual recipients of the prize. And the guy from the Nobel Association, whatever it's called, said, um, Madam Curie must have been a wonderful helpmeet for you. <laughs> so oh, goodness. That context the... matters, right? Yes, so here she absolutely. is back a few years later accepting another Nobel Prize in a different category. I mean, that alone is mind-blowing, right? Is mind-blowing. Mm. And understanding that context before you then read the words. Mm. So, so that's the context, and then it's what she said, and then it's how she did that. So for each of the 40 speeches, there are three lessons that as I sit back, listen, watch, absorb the context, the mannerisms, the words, the impact— what are the three things that, you know, regular humans, <laughs> normal people can take from, from that speech and apply it to their life? I love the way that it's laid out because not only does it help us be inspired by others, but it really helps us connect those lessons that we can take out of them as opposed to be intimidated or overwhelmed or yeah. just not even having a performance goal around speeches or anything because we feel like we can't attain that greatness. So yes. these lessons we pulled out can sort of really help us in all sorts of aspects of our communication. So what challenges do people face when they write these speeches? You mentioned before, don't start with PowerPoint. What, what are the great barriers to writing or delivering these speeches yeah. apart from fear? Yeah, well, fear is probably um, the biggest one mm. that that a lot of us have. And and Marie Curie is a really interesting example because she was not interested in communicating with non-technical, non-scientific people. She wasn't interested in the fame or the limelight. In fact, she used to wear her arm in a sling when she went to uh, functions so she wouldn't have to shake people's hands. That is too funny. Genius. Well, she was a genius. Right. Uh, so the challenges that people face... I believe, when they go to plan a presentation or to write a speech is knowing where to start. You know, what, what do I do first? So depending on, on your nature, you, you know, you always have the people that procrastinate. I'm certainly one of those people. Put it off, put it off, put it off. But they're cogitating. You know, you might be walking your dog thinking about what you're going to say. I think cogitating is underestimated, yes. quite frankly. But, you know, <laughs> we can call it procrastination. Yes. But I do think cogitating is very good. Yeah, it's Keep critical. Yeah. So I think that we could take a lesson from the procrastinators in the world, everybody, and don't start before you know what it is you want to say. So, sure, analyze the challenge. What's this speech meant to do? read all of the briefing materials that you might get from whoever has asked you to deliver the speech. But then just, if you have time, just let it be. Step back, push your chair away from the desk, go and do something else, and wait and see what bubbles up. Because you know what you want to say. It just has to come to the surface and bust through all the noise. There's so many expectations, especially in, in business, of what we think a presentation should sound like and look like. Believe it or not, you don't even need to use PowerPoint <laughs> or whatever um, slide system you choose. You don't have to. It's a great tool. It can help emphasize and enhance a presentation, but it should never be the presentation. So I, I do think that it's become a huge barrier to us communicating in a forthright manner. As soon as we open PowerPoint, we have a tendency to want to shove into the slides everything we, we want to say. So if I can read it, I don't need you. 
don't make that mistake. So my advice to people after they've cogitated, the, the ideas have risen to the surface. If they can land on that purpose statement first, then keep in mind the relationship they have with the audience. What's the best way to shift this particular group of people on this day? Use a structure. And again, Aristotle gives us a brilliant three-part structure. Use a structure because it will help you organize your thoughts. So I like a three-by-three structure, as lots of presenters and presentation skills trainers use. Um, But I also encourage people to break the rules. For those of you who are rule breakers by nature, structure can be your best friend. Because the danger of people that just have a brilliant idea and say yes, 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 without doing any planning, is they get to the microphone and an idea that sounded great in their head fails to land for the audience because it's not connected. There's no beginning, middle, and end. There's no buildup. It's kind of the thunder is lost uh, because there is no structure and no organization. So having a little bit of structure, if you're one of those kind of magical thinkers, can save your life. Mm. I love this. I could hear you forever. What other things can we do to prepare to communicate with influence and persuasion and and good humor? Yeah. Look, Self-awareness is really important, as it is with any kind of skill development or soft skill development. The skills that really help you make a difference in your career. Communication, presentation, persuasion is one of those skill sets. And the way to get better is to reflect on who you are. So we have to have a sense of how we come across. You need to get some feedback from people that you trust. Then go and be a student of persuasion and communication. Read these speeches. Watch the debates. If you can develop that capacity for understanding, not just whether a speech made an impact on me, but then think, okay, well, why? Why did it make an impact on me? Was it because I, I, you know, I was moved by the story or was it because it was organized in such a way that I learned something new and that changed my mind? If we look a little closer and don't just let the words wash over us, look a little closer, see how other people do it, which is really the intent of this book. With our own self-awareness now a little bit heightened, we can develop our own voice. Love that. I have to say a huge thank you to you, Monica. I have been completely compelled by everything you've said today, and I can't wait to read the book in more depth. Thank you for taking the time to share with us today what it is really the art of inspiring action through speech. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Monica. Thank you, Margie. Thanks. Fast Track was presented by me, Margie Hartley. Producer, Tina Matalov. Audio production by Nikki Sitch. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.